0: herzlich willkommen. Hello and a warm welcome to City Breaks Berlin, episode four, the Tiergarten and the Kuhdamm. Okay, so those are two quite German words. The Tiergarten is Berlin's largest park and the Kuhdamm is its poshest shopping street and they're both to be found quite near each other in the western part of Berlin. We spent all of the last episode in the east and I think probably there is more to see there, but Don't forget the western half of the city, because it's full of delights too, in a slightly lower key, while also being posher sort of way. So if you linger in the western half of the city, you have at your disposal the Tiergarten, so the largest park, acres and acres of woodland and foot and cycle paths and lakes, and also some monuments and statues and whatnot. There's also then the Kudam, which is short for Kofirsten when you hear that word, you can hear that even the Germans need a short form, so they call it the dam. That's the long, wide boulevard, which has for centuries been the posh end of Berlin. And on or near which you can find a church which you really shouldn't miss. If you only go to one church in Berlin, it should be this one. And also, just up the road from that, Harrods. Well, the German version of Harrods anyway. An exclusive department store, eight floors high, full, full, full of luxury goods, and even if you're not buying, definitely worth a look round. This corner of the city is also home to that other Berlin institution, the zoo, and in today's episode we'll be going to all those places, and I hope to leave you with the idea that really this is an area of the city you definitely ought to visit. So let's start then with that area of the city, which surely stands out most on a map. And that's the large green blob that occupies most of the northwestern corner, the Tiergarten. I went early on a midsummer's evening, and my memories include lots of beautiful leaves and lights, endless footpaths and cycle paths, lots of Berliners biking and jogging and relapsing after work. So, yes, acres of beautiful trees, but also, as a quick look at the map will tell you, some lakes and a scattering of monuments. The Tiergarten created in the 16th century as private hunting ground for the electors of brandenburg so just in those days outside the city somewhere to ride to from the palace on unterden linden a woodland area bordered by a river with some lakes too so full of things they wanted to hunt and shoot and fish an area reserved for a couple of centuries for royalty but open to the public by frederick the great in 1742 and ever since then a haven for Ordinary people, but also for the less ordinary. The Romantic writers flocked there. The Brothers Grimm were often seen walking there. Poets went there for inspiration. And it's one of those places that's been very much written about. Here, for example, is the author Robert Walser, whose short story, called Tiergarten, was published in 1911. And in this little paragraph, he tries to capture its atmosphere. Quote, The walkers lose themselves, now one by one, now in graceful, tightly-knit clusters and groups, among the trees whose high branches are still breezily bare, and between the low bushes that constitute a breath of young, sweet green, the soft air trembles and quivers with buds that seem to sing, to dance, to hover. The image of the tear garden as a whole is like a painted picture, then like a dream, then like a circuitous, agreeable kiss. And here's another early twentieth-century writer, Franz Hessel, in his book Walking in Berlin, published in, I think, 1929, remembering what it was like as a child to go and play in the Tiergarten. Quote, What I remember most from that time are the tiny, high-arching bridges over the streams that were sometimes guarded by bronze lions, the railing chains hanging from snout to snout, and the lake, known as the Neuesee, is just as it was back then, or so it seems to me, It's getting too late to head there today, and so, in my mind's eye, I trace its coves and wooded aisles, where we skilfully skated, arm in arm, writing figure eights on the ice. So, yes, it's a large wooded area, full of cycle paths and footpaths, but running through it too are a number of fairly main roads, five in fact, which all meet in the middle, at something called the Stern, the Star. And of those, by far the most famous is the one that runs right through it from east to west, known as Die Straße des 17. Juni, so the street of the 17th of June. That's a modern reference which I'll come to in a minute. One of the other roads is called Hofjägerallee, which would translate into English as Royal Hunting Alley. So that gives more of an idea of its origins. The street of the 17th of June runs from the Brandenburg Gate, in the southeastern corner of the park, right across the whole width of it to the far west, out towards the suburb of Charlottenburg, which you're very likely to go and visit because that's where the royals built their summer palace, which you can still visit today. This road was first paved in the 1700s, I imagine so that coaches could pass through, perhaps for afternoon drives, or perhaps because they were actually going to Charlottenburg, and as so often in Berlin, There have been some major moments of history taking place on this road. It was here, for example, in August 1914, that hundreds of thousands of Berliners congregated to cheer a military parade. During the Nazi period, it became a triumphal avenue, lined with Nazi flags. And it was then, too, that they moved the Prussian victory column, which had originally been outside the Parliament, to the middle of the Tiergarten, to give it real prominence. But, by the end of World War II, a completely different story. Thousands and thousands of the trees had been cut down to be used as firewood by desperate Berliners whose homes had been destroyed. And, because bombing had rendered the airports more or less unusable, a landing strip was set up here. The name of the road refers to a particular 17th of June, the one in 1953. It was on that day that there was a major uprising in East Berlin. About a million people gathering to protest against the communists, hoping to get rid of them. It ended in failure, brutally suppressed by East German police and Soviet tanks. But as East Germany was withdrawn into the communist bloc, West Germany wanted to show support. They declared the 17th of June a public holiday, and they renamed this iconic street running through the Tierpark after the uprising so that it would never be forgotten. The 17th of June was a public holiday in West Germany, right up until reunification, at which point it was moved to October the 3rd and renamed German Unity Day. Today, this road is an area for big events. During the 2006 World Cup, it became the Fanmeiler or Fan Mile, a place for football fans to gather, to watch large screens, cheer on their team and generally be very patriotic. It's the starting point for the Berlin Marathon. It's the place to gather on New Year's Eve. And there is a second road I really ought to mention, the one called the Siegesallee, Allee, the Victory alley which in fact no longer exists, but which has a very interesting story to it. It too is a broad boulevard running right through the Tiergarten, this time from north to south, half a kilometre in length, and crossing over the Straße der 17. It was devised by Kaiser Wilhelm in 1895 to celebrate his birthday. A gift to the city, he said, and it certainly was a sight, because along it he had stationed 96 white marble statues, all chosen to celebrate German history. The very first one was Albert the Bear, and the last one was Kaiser Wilhelm himself, who else, and in between all kinds of Prussian royal figures. The main statues, of which there were 32, were some four to five metres tall, so impossible to miss. Unfortunately, even at the time, this project was fairly widely derided by Berliners, who do like to mock things. They called the whole thing Denkmal Willi, so Willy's Monument. They also called it Puppenallee, so Doll's Alley. On the whole, they thought it pretty vulgar and overindulgent. After his abdication... So the end of the monarchy in Germany, there were calls to have them dismantled. But it wasn't until the 1940s, when the Allied powers were in Berlin, that it was all finally taken down. The Siegesallee went back to being a footpath, the statues were removed, some of them, I think, are still to be found today in a museum in Spandau. But if you go to that area of the Tierpark today, you won't see any sign of what was once there. In the middle, however, where all the roads meet, you will still see the Sieger Soiler, so the victory column. And you certainly won't miss that. It's made of red granite, it's 67 metres high. You can climb up to the top, 270 steps, I believe. And if you do that, you'll be reaching up towards the winged goddess who sits atop wearing a helmet adorned with eagle's feathers, holding a laurel leaf to symbolise victory and honour and peace, holding, too, a battle standard crowned by an iron cross. So, quite a lot of messages in there. It was erected in 1873 after various victories against the Danes, against Austria, against France and also just after the moment in 1870 when Germany became one unified country. France had the enormous Napoleon column in Place Vendôme. The Brits had built Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. Germany was going to have its victory column too. There was an inscription on it which read The Grateful Fatherland pays tribute to the victorious army, but you won't see that today because it was removed after 1945. The monument, though, is still very much there, completely unmissable, a meeting place for Berliners and a popular tourist venue. It stands on the roundabout, or the intersection of all these five roads which meet there in the middle of the Tiergarten, and you get to it from the safe side of the road using one of four underground tunnels, If you do that, you can pay to climb up the spiral staircase to the viewing platform, pausing to reflect, perhaps, that in the days of a divided Germany, this, the highest structure in the western part of the city, was a popular place from which to get a look at the eastern part of Berlin, which was closed off behind the wall. So that's the Tierpark. What else can you do in this part of Berlin? Definitely visit the Kürfürstendamm. The road's name is certainly a bit of a mouthful, the word first in the middle of it means prince so it was once the royal part of the city a long wide fashionable boulevard somewhere today largely known for its hotels and its shopping but also for one or two sites which are definitely worth visiting the Kaffirsen Dam began life in the 16th century as an access road out to a hunting areas but it was transformed in the 19th century by bismarck it was designed as a parisian style wide boulevard somewhere for wealthy Berliners to escape from the more crowded area over towards the east, and by the early 20th century it really was a centre of entertainment and leisure options, somewhere to shop and gossip, to be seen, to indulge in a little glamour and glitz, somewhere which was definitely very different from the eastern half. There is a scene in Ernst Haffner's book, Blood Brothers, which nicely sums this up. Two little boys from Mitter, so the eastern half of the city, have gone over to the west, and they find it completely different. Here's the description, written in 1932. Here they feel they're somewhere else, in a rich and cheerful abroad. Everyone is wearing brand new clothes, as though it were a holiday, and not some ordinary Wednesday. The shops are like palaces, in which His Majesty the Customer is standing around idly, on the lookout for some precious knick-knack or other. And the women, ladies. every one apparently without exception, well-dressed, fragrant, lovely. Even the little dogs the ladies press to their furs or have trotting along beside them are dressed in cute little blankets and have sparkling collars. And a dog, one little dog, a tiny bundle of fluff, actually wears little patent leather booties on all four feet. By the 1920s, this area had become a gathering place for writers and artists, the intelligentsia. The place where you'd find the publishing houses, the big newspapers, lots of cafes where writers and artists would gather. The Romantisches Café, for example, or the Café des Vestens, where you might find writers like Erich Kessner, who wrote Emile and the Detectives, of course, or Joseph Roth, or perhaps the artist Otto Dix also a place where you'd find jazz clubs and a distinctly alternative culture described for example by the writer Peter Gay in his book Weimar Culture where he wrote of "made-up boys with artificial waistlines promenading along the Kurfürstendamm and here is his summary of the atmosphere quote, "even the Rome of Suetonius had not known orgies like the Berlin transvestite balls" where hundreds of men in women's clothes and women in men's clothes danced under the benevolent eyes of the police. Amid the general collapse of values, a kind of insanity took hold of precisely those middle-class circles which had hitherto been unshakable in their order. Oliver Hilmes wrote a book about the Berlin Olympics called Berlin 1936, in which one of the characters, Tom Wolfe, makes a point of staying on the Kferstendam whenever he's in Berlin. He feels it's the real Berlin. His hotel is right next to the golden tower clock of the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, and he feels that the whole area has a special magic. "Kurfürstendamm is crammed with cafés, restaurants and bars, and for Tom, the boulevard is one great coffee house. The crowds sauntered underneath the trees on the Kurfürstendamm. The terraces of the cafés were jammed with people and always through the golden sparkle of the days." there was a sound of music in the air. Wolf wouldn't want to be anywhere else in Berlin. If you go today, definitely a road to wander up and down a little, and there are two, one or two specific things worth having a look at. One would be the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church. Another is Berlin's largest, fanciest department store, known as the KDW, or KDW in German. And it's also the place where you will find that other institution The Berlin Zoo. So to start then with the Memorial Church, definitely worth a visit, as it's yet another of those places which you could really only find in Berlin. Originally one of Berlin's best-known churches, bombed almost to destruction in the Second World War, and today a mixture: the little bits that were left still standing, and a new memorial church built around it and alongside. So a testament to history, a memorial an anti-war building, all rolled into one. Built originally in 1895 by Kaiser Wilhelm, yes, him again, but named, in fact, not after himself, but after his father, the first Kaiser Wilhelm, a building which soon became a much-loved landmark in this part of the city. Until, on November the 23rd in 1943, it was very badly bombed, almost completely destroyed, in fact. Just one part of the West Tower remained. The author Christabel Bielenberg wrote very movingly about what she saw when she went to that part of the city the day after the bombing. When I reached the truncated Gedächtniskirche, I was surrounded by a frozen sea of shattered ruins. I had never seen bombing like it before. In Budapester Straße, house after house was an empty shell. Not one single building had survived. It was the centre of Berlin, capital of Hitler's mighty empire, which he had boasted would last a thousand years. And I was alone in a silent ghost town. In 1959, 1960, rebuilding began. But what to do? Should they put it back as it was? It was decided that wasn't the way to take. What they wanted to do was make a place for remembrance, the kind of anti-war memorial, but still keep it as a church. So the remaining tower was strengthened and left in place and a hall built around it, And right next door, a brand new church, still with Kaiser Wilhelm in the name, but also the word Gedächtniskirche, so Memorial Church. One of the most stunning buildings I think you'll see in the whole of Berlin, especially inside. I saw a description of it as being constructed of concrete, steel and glass, which is true. It went on to explain that the walls of the church are made of a concrete honeycomb containing 21,000 stained glass inlays. And yes, that's what you notice when you go in. The most beautiful stained glass seems to fill the building. The dominant colour is blue, a bright blue, with little panels of ruby red and emerald green and yellow. Very modern in feel, a plain modern altar at the front, and above it suspended a figure of the resurrected Christ. It's open, I think, most of the time, and unless there's a service going on, I really recommend that you do pop in and have a look. It's stunning. Next door then at the base of the damaged spire which was left there's a hall with really two things to look at. There are mosaics depicting scenes from German history and biblical stories and then separate from that there's a display area with panels telling the story of the old church and its destruction and its rebuilding. Also inside the hall two or three things particularly to look out for. There is right in the middle a damaged statue of Christ, so the one that was in the original building, just what's left of it. And then just next to that, something called the Cross of Nails, so an actual cross built of nails, which were originally the nails in the roof timbers of Britain's Coventry Cathedral, also very badly damaged in the war in a German air raid in 1940, and also rebuilt in a similar fashion. So what was left still there, and a brand new church. Next to it, equally a memorial church. I think it's also true to say that in Coventry Cathedral there is a gift from Berlin, so a joint act of reconciliation from both cities to each other. And then, just a few minutes' walk from the Gedechniskirche is somewhere else I definitely recommend popping into, and that's the KDW, spelt out in English KDW. The letters stand in German for Kaufhaus, Department Store, des Westens, of the West. I think it was called that originally when it opened in 1907, but of course the name became particularly important of significance during the time when East and West Berlin were separate and the Kalfastus Westens was firmly in the western half of the city. It was founded in 1907 by a German-Jewish family, taken away from them in the 1930s, or Aryanized, as it was called, and gutted by bombs during World War II being another Berlin institution, it too was rebuilt starting in the 1950s, from which point it gradually became a symbol of the German Wirtschaftswunder, or economic miracle, the building up of material prosperity again in Germany after the war. And then when it found itself in West Berlin, inaccessible to East Berliners, it became a sort of symbol of the West, a showpiece for capitalism and consumerism. All of that might have a different ring today but in the days when East Berlin could have none of these things I think the West thought they were sending an important message. If you go today you'll find eight floors specialising in different merchandise, luxury goods and fashion, books and entertainment and particularly I would suggest go to the sixth and seventh floors which are entirely devoted to food, the most incredible delicatessen I think you'll see anywhere in the world stand after sand of cheese and sausage and luxury foods, gourmet counters of every description, certainly a sight to behold. And then one floor up again, the eighth floor, the top floor, is a winter garden restaurant, a thousand seats, huge windows overlooking the Wittenbergplatz just outside. It's not massively expensive, you don't have to have a full meal, you can certainly just have a coffee, and I would say popping in there is one of the things you should definitely, definitely do. On any visit to Berlin. And then also in this area, a third Berlin institution, the Zoo, opened in 1844 as a private menagerie for the royal family. By 1900, it had become much, much bigger. I think at that point it was the largest zoo in Europe, or certainly the one with the biggest number of species, and really quite a place. Aside from the animals, who were, of course, the most important thing, there was all the Art Deco building making it a very charming place to visit, popular with families. Some were visited by generations of Berlin children and somewhere memorably described by Franz Hessel in his book, Walking in Berlin, written in 1929. They had built, he wrote, a sort of brick bathhouse for the hippopotamus. The Indian elephant had his own palace with a mosaic dragon pictured on it and the guinea pigs had, quote, their own tiny Baroque palace. Much of this can still be spotted today, despite the fact that the zoo too was more or less completely destroyed during the Second World War. There were 3,700 animals, of whom it is said only about 90 survived, but it was rebuilt after the war, expanded, and regained its place as a Berlin institution, which it still is today. More recent generations of Berliners will be able to tell you about some of the famous animals that everybody knew. For example, there was Knarchka, the hippopotamus, one of the very few animals who did survive World War II, whom everybody knew and saw as a sort of symbol of hope. He'd survived, and so too would they. More recently, there was Knut, the polar bear, who was hand-raised in the zoo in the early 2000s, after his mother had abandoned him. That was a story that Berliners followed blow by blow, and imagine the upset then, in 2011, when he drowned, more recently, again, there were the two pandas gifted from China, Meng Meng and Xiao Qing. I think they arrived in 2017 and took up residence in an enclosure which was opened by the Chancellor Angela Merkel herself. All of this was already a talking point, and then in 2019, panda twins were born, Pitt and Paola, as they were called. And for this momentous event, there was a live blog. There was worldwide coverage on channels like CNN. Another chapter in the history of the Berlin institution known as the Tierpark, which means animal park, and is easily confused with Tiergarten, which is the much bigger park described at the beginning of the episode. So, all in all then, this is a lovely area of Berlin. Yes, perhaps there are fewer actual sights to see, but what there is there certainly is worth seeing. You could certainly spend a morning on the Kuhldamm, visiting the church, sauntering around, popping into the Kardevei, a morning or afternoon in the Tiergarten will be a chance for some rest and relaxation. Always a good thing on a city break. You can walk, you can go boating on the Neuse, where there are also some nice cafes. You can visit, perhaps climb the Siegessäule. No shortage of things to do. And also, while you're in this area, you're well placed to go a little further west again, a couple of stops on the U-Bahn, to Charlottenburg, where you will find the Hohenzollern's Royal Palace. One of those which was originally well outside the city, which is now part of the suburbs, and has not just a beautiful house to look round, but also a set of lovely grounds with various points of interest dotted around in it. There'll be an episode on that later on in the series. I hope then that I've conveyed the idea that West Berlin is very much worth a visit. And although I gave an overview of the eastern half of the city in the last episode, we never really finished with that. So next time I'm going to go back over to the east and talk about four different squares, all of which have their various histories and charms. And between them they cover Imperial Berlin and the Berlin of East Germany, and the very latest building project designed to address the question of how much of old Berlin to keep, how much to look towards the future, and whether the two can be mixed. The answer in the Humboldt Forum is very much yes. So I hope that you will join me for that. And meanwhile, it just remains for me to say thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank für's Zuhören. And to look forward, hopefully, to your company again next time. Also, bis zum nächsten Mal. Goodbye, or in German, auf Wiederhören.